Hello, my name's Debbie Evans and I'm the nursing correspondent from UK Column. But I'm also a mum and today this interview is dedicated to Ethan. Ethan was born on the 4th of September 2013 and tragically he passed away on the 23rd of January 2022, aged eight. This interview is Ethan's story and today I'm joined by his amazingly brave mum, Tracy. And this interview is also to highlight the plight of children and parents who are currently looking after very sick children in and out of hospital. It's also to highlight the safety and effects of the onset of multiple allopathic medicines, cocktails of allopathic medicines. And this interview also is to call for a choice for parents for when their children do get diagnosed with serious illnesses, that they're given a choice of alternative medicines that they can seek. Ethan's story, although far too short, was an incredibly happy one. And although he had multiple diagnoses, including autistic spectrum condition and epilepsy, and was on an array of allopathic medicines, including sodium valparate, he had an incredibly happy life. And I think we can see some pictures of Ethan right now so that you can all see what a beautiful, beautiful boy Ethan was. And Tracy is here now to share with us her fight, her struggle, and her dedication to act in the best interests for her beautiful son. And it's an extraordinary, tragic, and sad, but happy story. So welcome, Tracy. Please introduce yourself and tell us all about your beautiful son, Ethan. Welcome. Hi, Debbie. Thanks very much for allowing me to come on today to talk about my beautiful son, Ethan, and his journey he's had in this short life. But an amazing, brave boy and strong boy, and he's just showed us so much um, of what all we can be. Um, Ethan was just a loving, a loving, caring child, typical boy, and he met all his milestones um, up until one, uh, up until 12 months. But he was very advanced for his age. Um, from north to 12 months he would um, he was able to walk around furniture at 11 months uh, he could walk independently at 12 months and his first trip outside was 13 months but even uh, going back to uh, three months he was rolling over uh, all the all the milestones were there and you know we, we had no concerns and he was such a bundle of joy he was my miracle baby because I'd wasted years for Ethan for my second child and when he came it was just just a joy he'd just put off the hugs for no reasons uh, he loved being around people uh, he, he loved being outside he loved transport his favorite transport was trains and that was a big part of Ethan's life um, from when he was born up until when he passed um, he, he loved all um, every sort of transport actually just being outside and hearing them and seeing them it just gave him so much joy and he played with all his toys you know he, he didn't rule out he did, wasn't one particular favorite toy at the start obviously it went on to be in trains but he played with all his toys um yeah he, he was just so loving he joined in i'd sent him to play groups uh, we went to a few different play groups together. Uh, it was just a, he was just a typical boy. He loved his, his food. His favourite food was peanut. It was actually cashew butter, and um, <laughs> he loved cashew butter. And his his favourite uh, products I get from a shop for a treat was uh, Freddo bars. So a lot of mums could relate to the chocolate and the Freddo bars. He loved them. Uh, we'd often that be his big treat at the end of our shopping trip together. Uh, he loved his favourite cup of uh, drink was Robo's tea. Uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was just a joy to be around. He loved hugs and he loved chocolate yes. too. And didn't you tell yes. me on his fifth birthday he got to go in the front of a train? And that was an absolute thrill for him. 
Yes, my sister-in-law arranged with uh, Maisie Travel for him to go in the very front. It was so funny, actually, because when we pulled into the different stations, people were doing a double take because they could see this child at the front with this Maisie Rail cap on. So I was so grateful for them to do that. And they were amazing, the staff. They actually brought uh, along as well gifts for Ethan and a cake. So they, they made, they really spoilt even on the day and they took us from our local station to uh, Liverpool um, Central. For wonderful memories. And, and you know, yes. when, you, when you think about a child on a train, it's just the most innocent, pure thing, isn't it? It's just, and, and I think it's very important for us to highlight to everybody listening and watching too, Tracy, that you're a very holistic mum. So you're very into natural medicine and for those of you thinking about child vaccinations, Ethan was never vaccinated, was he, um, ever? Um, and he he was just amazing. And, and, and until it was, what, how old was it? You started to, to notice a few little problems, didn't you, with him? When he was younger, he had very cold hands, I think I remember you saying. When did you start to notice that there might be some, some problems with Ethan's development or his physical condition anyway? Yes, I started to notice around 15 to 16 months of age. Uh, and in between that time, I was, because he was C-section born, I made it my goal to, you know, give him the best of course. So I breastfed Ethan for three three years. Uh, but in between that time of, of him being born to 16 months, I could see things like cold hands and feet, uh, a tearing in his left eye. He would he would have uh, the odd bout of uh, croup. Um, but then I noticed the speech delay around 15 to 16 months old. And I was getting I was getting told not to worry because boys are, are, are behind on the speech, not to worry about that. Where did you get really worried, Tracy? Because after those initial consultations with doctors where they told you not to worry, etc., he went to visit his grandparents, didn't, didn't he? When he was about three years old, he was at his grandparents. What happened then? Yes, yeah, so, so at three years old, by, by the time he was three, he was toe walking and hand flapping and high pitch screech. And um, he was very, uh, he was a hyperactive child, Ethan. And on that particular day, he was very um, excited because it was a typical Saturday, which anyone can relate to, off to uh, your mums and dads with your children. So it was a typical afternoon and he was playing with his cousins. And um, what just just in one instant, uh, my, my brother came in and Ethan looked at him and he went into um, what I think now was an absence seizure and he was just following his eyes around the room. So instantly my brother said to me, what's wrong with Ethan? So I just looked at him, picked him up and walked to, into the hall and sat him down on the stairs and uh, within a few seconds he, he went into a full grand mal seizure and straight away my sister-in-law got onto the phone to call the ambulance and there was none available so there's no ambulances available back in 2016 and the, no ambulance turned up a paramedic car turned up and recommended us not to go to Alder Hay because it was fully packed for us to go to another local hospital, which is Ormskirk and Southport, and that's where we took him. That must have been the most incredibly terrifying experience um, for you. So when you get to Ormskirk, what do they say? They said, it's, don't worry about it. It's quite common in young children. The class, they said it was anoxic seizures. And, you know, it's not a concern. He'll grow out of it. But we but become more frequent. It became every every two weeks this happened. So we were going back and forth to Ormskirk because um, that was that's cause the first place we went to and I had a children's A&E there. So we did take Ethan there for that reason at first. Um, and then it wasn't until um, six, about five months later that they said, right, we do need to look at that your son has got epilepsy and think about prescribing the best anti-convulsive medication. And that one was sodium vulpamate. 
Wow. Um, Tracy, just for people that are listening, just want to explain, and you can correct me because you know far more about this than I do. But anoxic seizures um, are where the body can stiffen, um, the breathing becomes shallow, and there can be jerking movements. So those are anoxic seizures. And you've mentioned sodium valparate, and we've mentioned sodium valparate many times on UK Column, the dangers of sodium valparate, and that sodium valparate is also known by other names. Uh, one other name that you might have heard of is epilim. Now, sodium valparate, I just want to reiterate that there, have been, there has been an update by the MHRA on sodium valparate in that it is now known to cause birth defects and neurodevelopmental disorders. It's also a multi-generational um, medicine, which means that the serious adverse reactions can affect generations going on. The regulatory requirements for safe use were not being constantly followed, which is why the MHRA in December changed their regulation. This now means that nobody under the age of 55 should ever be started on sodium valparate unless two specialists independently decide that there is no other option. So informed consent, two consultants, and only to be used as a last resort. So I just want to make that clear to everybody watching and listening, because my next question to you, Tracy, was going to be, were you informed at the time about the dangers of sodium valparate? Did you know anything about sodium valparate? And were you given any choice before Ethan was started on it? No, not really. They said, um, you know, that the first choice of drug for these type of seizures would be sodium valparate, and it was called epilim. It was prescribed epilim. And no, I mean, they quickly go over, you know, um, it, it wasn't really discussed, if I'm being honest. You find out, really, after you get the, the first bottle with the leaflet inside and you look at the known side effects. But by then, you know, your child's already started on the medication. And it, I, I, I do feel it's a bit of a trap, if I'm being honest, because they're saying there's nothing else they can give my child. They're saying this is your best option. You need to try this. Regardless of the side effects, you need to try it. And because there's no other options available, that's what we did. Because you, you, you're living in fear because you're waiting, not that you're waiting for the next seizure to happen, but that's at the back of your mind all the time. I need to make these seizures go away because they're life threatening. And this is their only solution. Tracy, when he was started on sodium valparate, did it improve his seizures or did you notice any deterioration um, in him after taking valparate? Because as you've rightly said, and this is one of the reasons that you're bravely speaking up today, is to highlight the fact that once you, once a child receives a diagnosis, then automatically they're within the allopathic health system and when a paediatrician or consultant tells you or informs you or advises you that this is the best interest for your child and you're seen to challenge it, then you're not seen as the advocate for your child looking to do the best for your child. You're seen almost as a troublemaker. And I can understand completely why you would have felt fearful of people looking over your shoulder. But what effect did that sodium valparate have on Ethan? What did you notice? In the first two and a half weeks, we didn't we didn't see anything really. We, we saw the normal things that we saw with Ethan, and there was a sort of decline in the seizures. But then it, it hit him quickly. The change. He started having body jerks, which we'd never seen before before going on sodium valparate. And this was the alarming thing that I noticed. OK, Ethan was having a few absent seizures. He was having a grand mal every other weekend. But the body jerks appeared 50, 100 a day. And I thought to myself, what is going on? And it continued. And then so I decided to take him to Alder Hay, Liverpool. And they just dismissed it. They just said, you know, 
it, it's what they what they do say is when a, a parent questions any medication, they just said it's the seizure changing its pattern, and we were told this. It's he's now got a new type of seizure. So before he just have an absence seizure and a grand mal seizure. Now he's in, it's been included now that he's having myoclonics. But would it, the drug would, would be protected? It wouldn't be about the drug. It would be about the condition. And that's exactly the point, isn't it? Because we're talking about seizures here that are life threatening. So we're talking about very, very serious seizures. And um, I'm sure our viewers and listeners are going to be thinking the same as me right now in that how could any doctor possibly, especially someone as, as, as highly qualified as they're meant to be children's in Alderhey, dismiss a child who's having 100 seizures a day? How can they just dismiss that? So I'm presuming that the sodium valparate was reviewed and it was started to be reduced and maybe you were given alternatives is that what happened tracy next no it was the opposite actually because they went into the, the direction of it's a new seizure pattern they said to increase um at one by the time ethan had been on sodium valpermate which was from march um 2017 so that's when he started it to november 17 uh, which is about eight months. Uh, he got up to around six mil twice a day, and he was having breakthrough morning seizures, which I said was to do with the sodium valpermate. But again, it, it's that's just not questioned. It's to do with again, this is the epilepsy, not the drug. It was never and then ever you, suggested, was it? Because they no. actually then re-diagnosed him with another syndrome, almost to. To, to explain the change of seizures yeah so from from november 17 um that's when ethan was given um a diagnosis um because in between obviously um the seizure pattern they um had actually sent off for a genetic testing for ethan because of the amount of seizures he was having and saying it was very unusual but again i was saying it was to do with the medication um he, uh, genetic testing was sent to come back and um he was prescribed another drug called kepra uh, the brand name's called kepra sorry and uh, he was weaned off sodium valpromate and put onto kepra but as soon as i gave kepra ethan would go into um a fixed cramp seizure straight away after I gave that dose and it happened only after a few doses I gave that and he'd go into a cramp seizure straight away so I, I stopped the medication because I, I you know in my best interest for my child I, we, we decided to stop it we, we did report as a hospital and what we had done and that's when they reported us to social services uh, and all I was trying to do was protect my child. I had the right as his parent to protect him. But I was, you know, I was treated as, as a criminal, to be honest. I think it's, um, like, I mean, it's it's shocking. It's, it's shocking that anybody is treated like this, least of all a, a mum, when you're protecting your child, because that's all of us, that's all that mums do, isn't it? We protect our child. Um, Dravet syndrome is known as a catastrophic form of epilepsy um, and it's prolonged seizures um, sometimes triggered by fever and what's interesting about Dravet syndrome considering that Ethan was never vaccinated is it has been linked to vaccinations and is normally Dravet syndrome is normally picked up very very early in life between six months and one year and Ethan was a lot older uh, when the Dravet syndrome was was diagnosed. He had genetic tests at Great Ormond Street as well, didn't he, Tracy? Yes, so by October 17, he was brought in for an EEG scan to look at the type of seizure patterns he was having. And within half an hour, the specialist came back into the room and said to me, we think he's got Dravet syndrome. So I, obviously I was devastated because I knew what that was. 
Um, and in between that time and November 17, my son had had an incident at home and I brought him in to the hospital over this incident and we were having an appointment the next day anyway. And that's when they basically said to us, we'd sent the genetic testing away to Gosh, the results had come back and they broke the news to us that Ethan had um, a condition called Batson's disease. The commonest form of Batson's disease uh, was just CLM2 and the life expectancy for that condition is 8 to 12 years. So obviously we were devastated. We were told this by Alder Hay um, and just basically our, our will fell apart. Uh, on the 8th, it was the 8th of November, 2017. Tracy, I, I can't even begin to think how you must have felt with all of these multiple diagnoses being thrown at you. Um, and now we have Batten's disease where we know it's, it, it's a fatal disease. So you're being told basically that your son is going to die. When he was on the Valparate um, and you weren't happy at all and you didn't you didn't like him to be on it. At that point, did you ever submit a yellow card to the MHRA um, of serious adverse reactions at that point? I know that will come on, I know that you have done since, but did you at that point? No, no, I didn't at that point, if I'm being honest, Debbie. You know, I have done since then. I've reported sodium valproate and diazepam Valium, both of those. Um, you know, and I got I got no response really. It's quite a genetic letter back to say that they acknowledge the email. That was it. Wow. But I want everybody to know that um, not only are you an amazing mum and incredibly brave, but you are the most extraordinary advocate in that you were seeking treatments from anywhere, really, weren't you, that you thought might help. And you did go and look very carefully at cannabis and the effects of cannabis. Um, tell us about your battle there, because it's it's incredible um, and, and involves people that we've spoken about many times on UK Column, including Jeremy Hunt. Um, yes. Tell us about the lengths that you went to to do the very best for your beautiful boy. Yes, really. Once I got the diagnosis, and I saw no help with the medications. I thought, well, I, I want to take a holistic approach. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I had a right to do that for my child. So I decided to, that was the path to help with the seizures, to start Ethan on medicinal cannabis. And the first was the form of CBD. And um, I've seen the benefits from that straight away. Um, just the CBD oil. There was no THC in it. Uh, it, it was not, you know, you, you couldn't get high with um, CBD oil. And um, but that was what the thing I, I thought, right, well, we'll try this. And I did see that stop the seizures, not all of the seizures, um, but it did release Ethan from being trapped in this constant myoclonic uh, pattern that he had. So it sort of slowed that down. So I knew it was doing something. And obviously, uh, I, I actually go back to the me breastfeeding Ethan for three years and the cabinoids and they give neuroprotection pre and after birth of a baby. So I wanted to continue with that path. And, I, and obviously, the endocannabinoid system we all have, but bizarrely, the NHS don't really talk about the endocannabinoid system. Uh, we all have it before we're born. Um, so obviously, I, I started Ethan on the CBD oil. But um, I wanted further help, so I contacted my local MP and um, he wrote to Parliament for me, the then Health Secretary, which was January Hunt, and basically we got no help. They, they said no, they wouldn't help us uh, to gain access through the NHS. So at that point, um, I took my place onto uh, Victoria Dobbs to show. And I told my Ethan's story on the Victoria's Derby show in July 18 about parents should have the right to have access within the NHS of the medicinal cannabis. Um, because obviously it was illegal in this country. So I went on to the show. Um, and from then on, August, we went over to Holland with my child. We flew over to see a doctor. Uh, we didn't get much help from that particular appointment. Then when we came back, 
um it was then in February the following year in 2019, Ethan's name was included on two, two campaigns, End Our Pain and um, Hope of the Children. Um, they were taken to Parliament, but again, nothing was actually done about that. Um, and it wasn't until I went and spoke to a private neurologist in June 19 that I gained access to a private prescription for the product that I wanted to try with Ethan. Um, and this one was well known in Holland. It was given out to children. It was, you, you know, regularly used and other, other uh, families were using it and seeing the benefits. So I wanted to try. It was the obvious choice for, for, for me to use for my child. Um, it was quite expensive to buy the product in the UK. So I made a huge decision to um, go to Holland and bring that back in uh, illegally because it's just so expensive, the prescription, and that's what I did. I went, I, left, I had to leave my child, I left my child with his dad and I went to Holland, made him back in a day and brought that back in to help save my son's life. And actually, Tracy, um, how nerve wracking was that? Because you you literally you went and with a backpack, didn't you, to bring it back? You had no idea whether you were going to get stopped, whether it was going to get taken off you. You'd got no clue, but you were, you had this prescription, and it was hugely expensive. And am I right in thinking that your neurologist never helped you, never helped you at all to source anything or or to seek um, a, a product within the UK so that you didn't have to go to these lengths. These were the lengths that you were driven to by the UK system. Yes, um, again, we wrote to, we actually, we actually wrote to our, our neurologist. We mentioned about obviously what was going on with our MP, but again, they wouldn't make any referrals. Uh, they said They said it wouldn't help with the condition. That's what they told us. Um, safety and ethnics and also um they did bring up epidiolects they said when that becomes available we could try that with, with your son but he was never given that anyway he, he was never offered that uh, product anyway and it's not a full plant extract product that's been isolated and where the children are seeing the benefits of medicinal cannabis is the full plant you know, the whole plant, all the different cannabinoids to help with, the, you know, the, the receptors, the CB1 receptor, CB2. I think they've just found a CB3 receptor as well. So I wanted the full plant extract with the THC, but we need the guidance as well, obviously, the expertise. And the NHS didn't have that. The NHS don't have a choice, do they? Parents have no choice. And I think this is what... Um, you're so bravely highlighting in the fact that once you get into the health service, there is very little, uh, very little place to go. And when you got a bang on the door from the social worker, because that happened as well, didn't it? I mean, you didn't have to just navigate this this huge system, and you didn't have to just bear the huge burden of knowing that your son was so desperately ill. But you also had to justify yourself, didn't you? You were pretty much alone in, in this whole journey of trying to do what you thought was in the best interests of Ethan. How lonely was it, Tracy, for you to do all of this? And how difficult was it? Because I can't imagine you didn't have really very much support at all, did you? Certainly not from any professionals. Yes, from a professional side, there, there was no support. You just feel isolated and um, you do feel lonely. And you, you just, you know, as a parent, you're just trying to help your child improve their quality of life. And that's what I was all, only trying to do, improve my quality, is my son's quality of life. And just go back quickly, Debbie, to um, bringing the cannabis, the CBD oil and the THC oil back into the country. Um, I, I actually wasn't nervous at all going past customs because I, I, my sister said to me at the time, aren't you concerned? I went, no, because if I if they stopped me, because they could stop me and compensate, compensate, I know that. 
but I, I, I just I said to her, I'll, I'll just shame them. Say, if you've got children with seizures, I would explain my story and, and, and if they were going to take that off me to shame them and do that. Why, why would they do that? I'm trying to save my child's life. And the, yeah, the social services, she, she was actually embarrassed, I've got to say. The lady who came was embarrassed because she could see the history of what my child was going through, the horrendous seizures. And what I was trying to do as a mother, being his advocate and trying to help him. And there's a system basically blocking me, making me feel isolated, making me feel like a criminal for trying to improve my child's pro uh, quality of health and what I was doing these projects were given to children as well in in Holland um, why would a service why would professionals block that why would professionals block that that is a very very good question and one that we're certainly highlighting now so this was all in 219 and then, as everybody knows, uh, 219, we're starting to see word of COVID. We're going into 220. We're starting to see lockdowns. How was Ethan's health um, around that time, Tracy? Um, how how did you cope during the whole of the, the start of the COVID? Because we started that in 219, really, as well. Yeah, so by, by the lockdown, Ethan... Um, was still recovering really from um, prescriptions of antibiotics he'd had from hospital admissions. It took me a year and a half to get some waste back on him. So um, he was, he had declined. Um, he had lost his sight by then. Um, he, he was, um, he, he wasn't able to um, drink properly by then. Um, he was still able to eat. You know, he was still able to eat. Uh, he'd lost his mobility and obviously plus the seizures as well. Uh, so it, it was it was so difficult because of the COVID. Uh, his wheelchair appointment got postponed. And obviously all the uh, actual appointments went online. Which I was quite happy with sometimes, I'm being honest, Debbie, because it's a, a big ask. And every parent who's got a, a disabled child special needs child will relate to this having a special needs child and disabled child and asking them to travel with them constantly to appointments is very stressful stress stressful on the child stressful on the parent and um yeah and so when when covid came in um the appointments went went to online Ethan had deteriorated he was still on the medication kepra um and he was still on the actual um, product, the cannabis, um, and that was, I, I'd actually even give Alderhey that free research. They knew he was on that product. They had all that information. Um, that, but the, the problem, the thing which was really upsetting for me is cannabis has done amazing things for people for various different conditions. And, um, for me, I don't feel I could see, was able to see the full benefits of the cannabis because that was working, fighting alongside the medication. And I, I felt like if Ethan could have just started on a holistic product first for his seizures, where would he be? Where would he be? How, was, how would the seizures be? How would he be in his health? But he wasn't given that opportunity. No, he wasn't. And... um I think it's an appropriate time to actually maybe show people a list of some of the drugs that Ethan was on that you very kindly provided. Um, and I'll try to pronounce most of them, but even for me, some of the names are difficult of some of the medications, but I'll just go through a few of them um, because he had so many. Uh, he had just a complete cocktail. So we're talking of medications such as clindamycin, dexamethasone, furosemide, phenobarbitone, gelofusion, sodium valparate, plasmolite, diazepam, potassium chloride, 
Prizol, I told you I couldn't pronounce some of them, Leviteracetum, I'm sure you'll correct me on these, Paracetamol, Ciprofloxin, Tycloplanin, Ketamine, Morphine, Fentanyl, Phenytoin, and Paraheldide. I, I mean, I just, Paraldehyde, sorry. Um, that is a lot of drugs. Um, Tracy, I know how difficult it was for you to keep these drugs going because many of them you didn't really want him to be on. But again, you were scared, weren't you? You were worried that if you took him off them, number one, his seizures would exacerbate and be even worse and it would it would jeopardise his condition. And number two, you were worried about what doctors would say if you were to reduce the medication or take him off it. You were worried that you would get seen as a, a, a troublesome mother, as somebody that was hindering or hampering what they were doing. I mean, that is a huge list of drugs. Um, just tell us how you how you felt with him being on that and not being able to do anything about it, because many parents um, will want to know. And, and as we're speaking now, there are some parents in intensive care units and high dependency units with their children who are going through the very same thing. Um, tell us what your thoughts are and what your advice would be to those parents. Um, I just felt, I, I felt trapped. I, I felt, tra I felt trapped, isolated. I felt they'd given up on my child. Um, the drugs that were given in the community were the chloral hydrate, the diazepam, the clonidine, the Keppra. Uh, the, other, the, other, the other drugs that I mentioned were used in the A&E admissions. But obviously, you know, you've got, you know, they're very addictive medications, opiates. And these are unlicensed adult drugs that they would give to a children first rather than trying to help them holistically. And it's just it's just devastating because besides all that, you've still got the dealing day to day with seeing your child in pain and crying from contractions. And the other thing I hadn't mentioned about the medications, they caused overstimulation. Uh, besides seeing more seizures, they caused overstimulation. They made my son high. He got high on Keppra. He got high on diazepam. I reported these and sent videos to Alder Hay. I didn't get a reply. Um, and, and all I was thinking at the back of my mind was, and I was trying to help him at home as much as I can with supplementation and, and therapies. But at the same time, I, I, all I was constantly thinking was, my drug, my son's getting poisoned by these drugs, and there's no, there's no testing for the levels in the community. I paid for a private blood test in Liverpool for sodium valpamate, and Ethan had had his dosage hours before, and he was still 96% of sodium valpamate in the system, and he was due. You know, a couple of hours later, he was due his next dose, and when I, I brought the report in to show the doctor. He said, that's just, a, that's just a snapshot. I said, so you're saying the blood tests don't, um, are there, there no value then? But they wouldn't do any toxic blood screening for my child in the community um, because they weren't doing that. I didn't know how this was affecting his kidney and his liver. Um, it was just horrendous. I just feel for every, every parent now who's in my position at home or in hospital, what they're going through. Yeah, absolutely. And Tracy, in 220, Ethan became very poorly and was admitted to hospital, I believe. Um, and you were talking about uh, compassionate care, end of life care, things like this were starting to be mentioned with regards to Ethan. When did things start to deteriorate even more? Okay, so what happened was, Debbie, if I could just mention July 2021 admission. Ethan was admitted in July 2021 uh, for a new seizure pattern I hadn't seen before. And um, the rescue med medicines at home didn't work. So he was put rushed in, put on a ventilator, 
uh, static epilepsis protocol and that worked and he came out and he was given antibiotics again. Uh, and from then, really, from July 2021, I seen the deterioration of Ethan. I seen the weight loss. Also, what I was seeing was ammonia in his urine. It was a really strong smell. I was reporting the, re the ammonia in the urine smell, and they were saying not to worry. It's it's no concern. But I know that the, there is a side effect with chloral hydrate, with um, the ketones. Um, and I was asking, if, I was reaching out to a few professionals at Alder High and Ormskirk. So when um, Ethan started having quite frequent seizures and he did vomit and bring up some blood, it was time to call the ambulance, obviously, and he'd lost weight as well. Um, so we, we, we called the ambulance and um, he was given the rescue med in the home and that didn't seem to do anything. So then it was on at Red Alert to um, Ormskirk um, because he wasn't allowed, I need to state this, he wasn't allowed to go to Alderhey because cause he first, his first point of hospital when he first had a seizure was at Ormskirk. They wouldn't allow him to go to Alderhey, Alderhey themselves. And even Ormskirk questioned that. Um, so, and I found it quite bizarre because I was going to take Ethan to Alderhey, but they were getting the advice the lead from Alderhey, but I had to go to Ormskirk. So he, he, he ended up in Ormskirk uh, the 2nd of January, late evening, uh, late afternoon. And he was there up until around the 4th of January, midnight. It was in between midnight and the 5th early hours that that protocol didn't work in Ormskirk and he was incubated and transferred to Alderhey. At that point, it was the early hours on the 5th of January, 2022. Wow. So, Tracy, when he was in Ormskirk, you were with him and yeah. he, he needed to have a PCR test. Um, is that right? Before he left Ormskirk for the transfer to Alderhey. Um, am I right in thinking that he had to have a, a PCR test first? Yes, actually, uh, he had two. The first PCR test, um, I said, I, I, no, I'm, I'm going to refuse the first PCR test. And they said, no, you can't, because if you refuse the, the, the PCR test, the very first one when he first came in, they said he may not receive life saving treatment. So I was basically fear in that my child had to have it. So Ethan was having, had his first PCR test. And then the second PCR test was done just before leaving Ormskirk en route to Alder Hay and, and the extra viral load as well. So and I was tested too. And they were, they all came back negative. So that's one relief that you're all negative. So you travel in the ambulance to Alderhey. This is what I'm presuming because you're going to tell me otherwise, I know. But you travel in the ambulance to Alderhey and Ethan is admitted to Alderhey and take us from there, Tracy, because then it all started to go really wrong didn't it with another pcr test yeah so what happened just before en route to Alderhey, um i was getting quite late by then because i was told there was no beds available at Alderhey, and they said to me so you can imagine how i feel as a parent he may be going to london or he may be going to manchester and you can't go with him and I said, what do you mean I can't go with them? You've just tested me, I'm negative. And this, because Ethan's dad had tested positive and he was in isolation. But he wasn't with us, obviously. I wasn't allowed to go. So Ethan left in the ambulance without me being there with him. No mum or dad to Alder Hay. And we, obviously I go home distraught. Ethan gets to Alder Hay and they test him again and say he's positive. He was positive and he just had negative. You'd all had negative. Um, I think the most shocking thing is, is that now we find out that that was actually in the hospital have admitted this, that this was a false positive. But however, because it came through positive, your beautiful boy was alone in Alderhey without you. How many days, Tracy, were you not allowed into Alderhey? And so you had no idea 
what was going on because you were isolated away from him. It's okay, just take a minute. Um, it's fine. At four days, I wasn't allowed to go in. And they set up a diary so you could view your child. Um, that's when he went to the high dependent sealed unit because obviously he went to the hospital on morphine and midazolam. And in between that time that I wasn't allowed in, uh, he was given a blood transfusion with my without my consent. Another PCR test without my consent. Um, the health plan that they decided for him to be on without my consent, I didn't see it. Because you don't see, you don't see that. You, you're getting told about things, but you're in such a, a horrific, different mindset because of what's going on. You can't actually absorb all that information. And this is where it's wrong because you're not getting anything written down, emailed to you, even with the medications that they, you know, the, even with the blood transfusion, there was there was nothing. There was no information. I was, I had to wait until um, he went in very early hours on the Wednesday, and I didn't. I wasn't able to go in to see him until Saturday. And when you went in, thank goodness you were eventually allowed in. I, I can't even begin to think. I mean, it's bad enough having a sick child, having a sick child in hospital, but then not being allowed to be in that hospital with your child and not know, and not being given any information either and things being done without your consent is absolutely heinous. In fact, it's wicked. But when you got to Alder Hay, what you found very strange was that it wasn't packed and full like you'd been told because you'd had to wait for beds. Actually, in Ethan's Bay, it was empty. Yeah, so um, when I came in, he was actually in the high dependency unit then and he'd been took off the morphine and they were bringing him down a wean on midazolam so he's in the high dependency unit that's when that's where i actually found ethan he was in that in the high dependency unit that's where i went to visit him and unfortunately that by the next day um that i could see some seizures coming back and um, that's where they decided by the, it was late afternoon that Ethan needs to be incubated again. And it was horrendous actually, because they actually, what was happening was he wasn't absorbing his fluids and they weren't checking that. And they were just emptying his stomach contents out onto the bed for me to see. It was like watching a movie. It was like I wasn't actually there. It's like having an out-of-body experience. And you were just watching and not participating. You were just left to sit there and watch while they did their what they had to do and laughing and joking about what, what other things. And then he was to transfer to the intensive care ward. But in between that time, I was left after just what I've witnessed. I was left to sit there in the HDU room for over half an hour. They said, we're just going to get uncomfortable, mum. You sit there. And we'll call you when we're ready. So I'm just all things going through my mind. So when I eventually call, come through to the high, you know, intensive care ward, the bay is empty. There's only one room taken. That's room 28, and the rest was empty. Yet in Ormskirk, they were telling me there's no beds. And that was only four days later. Tracy, I, Tracy, I think. What really we need to highlight here is that you were given no support at all from anybody. You were completely on your own. And I know that this is one of the things that you want to highlight in that every parent that has a sick child is anxious, worried, scared, nervous, every single emotion you can possibly think going through them. And yet, these parents, many of them, aren't getting support. And because we're now in the middle of the whole COVID pandemic, you did tell me, I'm sure I heard you tell me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it was also noted that you were unvaccinated and that you felt that because you were unvaccinated, there was almost a, a shunning of you where it was you weren't even considered to be offered any kind of 
support uh, going through what you were going through. Am I right? Yeah, so I, I felt um, I was treated differently. They actually, they've actually noted on my son's medical documents. It's noted on my son's medical documents against my name that I'm an anti-vaxxer COVID denier. And I was just questioning what they were doing. Um, and I did feel isolated, especially if you're going against the system. If you're saying, no, I don't agree with that. Now, if you do agree with it, there, there's support there. There's the counselling there. But if you don't agree with it, there's no support for you. I could be, I could be having a mental breakdown. They just expect me to make a decision like turning a life support off. You know, it's wrong to expect a parent to make these decisions, knowing that she's questioning the system anyway. And I, I, I force my questions in every meeting about what, what, why they're giving that drug. Uh, isn't there any other options? I asked for different options. I asked for medicinal cannabis again. At first, they said yes. In one meeting, I was told Ethan can try epidiolics. Uh, you know, ideally, I would have tried a full plant extract with my son, um, a different one, because this is the thing, this went mentioned on the news, they refer to cannabis as just one plant. There's thousands of strains of cannabis because the research is blocked. Um, there, sh there could be loads of strains out there doing wonderful things to people. Uh, so to label cannabis or label CBD, even just label it as CBD, that's incorrect. Because uh, we just don't label drug as a drug. It has to be, you have to know the name and you have to know what it does um, and all the ingredients in the drug. Uh, and it, it's just, it, it's just horrific. And I, I did, and I refused, uh, you know, they asked, that the, the counsellors will come over to me and the palliative care staff will come over to me. But I was very much, no, you're not going to help me. But there was no one there to say, look, she doesn't want the help, but we need to find someone to, to assist her or to, you know, just to give her support. And there, there wasn't any of that there in the hospital at all. I'm absolutely shocked because, like you say, you were you were begging really you you were begging them to 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 try what you wanted to try because you had nothing else to lose at this point and i know you tried in fact didn't you to transfer hospital again you know just anything but you weren't allowed to and and then all of a sudden you're told really that your beautiful son is now on end of life care i mean what happened then tracy um you know by that point um, you know, Ethan had, Ethan, what we'd witnessed, Ethan had been off and on a ventilator three times in eight, nine days. So the effects of those you know, poisonous, dangerous drugs on a child's brain is horrific and having to make any decisions. Uh, what Albert Einstein said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. And this is what this hospital were doing. They were doing the same thing over and over again, but up in the dose, expecting a different result. And all I was seeing was my son's urine turned dark brown. I could see my son's body sh shutting down. And in between that, in between the two hospitals, they'd, never, they'd nearly overdosed him on sodium valproate in the first hospital. And only because I saw the nurses chatting about it, that I pulled them up. They were quite shocked. That I'd overheard the conversation. So in between, back going back, flash forward now to um, no parent makes that decision. The forced, it's forced upon them because they're thinking you're just poisoning my child and you're not going to offer me anything else. I, I could be on my hands and knees and begging. Doesn't matter about my mental state. I could be on my hands and knees and begging for help, and they won't because they've got a set protocol. They're going to stick to it. My son had a hospital number, uh, account number, the hospital, sorry, but he also had an account number on his band. And that's all it is. It's just sticking to the protocol and that's the only thing they can offer. It's, it's not good enough. Uh, and I question, I asked a nurse, I said to a nurse, I actually said to a nurse who was treating my son, I said, you're giving my, this is poison. 
you're giving my son poison. And I was absolutely gobsmacked to what she said in return. What did she say, Tracy? Take a minute. Take a minute. She said, this is comfort medicine. She said, this is comfort medicine. And I just thought, this is just horrific. This is just criminal. And it was so cruel. The parents. And, and you couldn't even lie next to him, could you, Tracy? Because he was on a ventilator and they said that because of all the equipment, you couldn't even lie next to him and hold him. It was it was very difficult, yes, with all the wires. Um, and the, the doing, uh, as they call it, the cares. Uh, and also the, ch the, ch the checking on Ethan as well. It was very difficult, yeah. And it was really only after um, when the ventilator was turned off that we were given that time to, to be with our son properly. Um, and that is traumatic in itself, Tracy, because how many, how many times were you asked or it was suggested to you that Ethan's life support should be switched off. Did you feel pressured at any point that this was a decision that you would have to end up making? Uh, to be honest, Debbie, it was only after nine days of being in Alder Hay that they suggested. They actually said, um, one of the intensive care doctors um, said to me, you, you're going to have to make a difficult decision. And I was just like looking at her, thinking, what's going on? Because um, I'd spoke to another nurse who had taken over for a nurse who was on a lunch and she was standing in. And uh, I was just talking to her, having a nice little chat. She was telling me about talking about owls. And I just mentioned about my son. And I just said to her, is there any other children in this hospital? Who have, who have been in here a long time. And she said, oh yeah, there's some children that have been in here for months. So obviously hearing that, I was absolutely distraught because I felt I was getting pushed all the time. It, my son was discriminated for staying alive for an extended life because he was diagnosed with a terminal illness and because of his disabilities, he was discriminated. And there was no, I asked for Alder Hay to check outside Alder Hay, to speak to Gosh, to do the research. I asked the doctor, have you done all your research? And he was just nodding his head and I just felt I was getting lied to. That it's like they'd already made their mind up and it was like, well, we'll do this protocol, but this is the most we can do for you. And we'll leave it up to you now because we're not going to do anything else. And in the meantime, I have to sit there and watch my son deteriorates it, it, it's and I, I haven't been able to even grieve properly yes because the trauma of the hospital what i saw and tracy i think we need to remind people here because we've talked many times about midazolam and morphine and that children are in receipt of the same treatment and um Ethan was on midazolam and morphine. Now I'm just going to pause for a minute um, because what we're going to say next is utterly shocking. When you actually had to make that final decision of turning Ethan's life support off, what did the doctor say to you, Tracy? If it's too um, difficult, he leaned down, he leaned forward, um, he leaned forward and said, Congratulations. And um, we, we just couldn't believe he'd said that. Congratulations for Tim. The doctor said, It was on life support machine off. Uh, congratulations for turning your son's life support machine off. And those are words I, I just, that should never be used, ever. And I just want to 
thank you for saying that. Um, and I will say it again for anybody that didn't hear it first time or is struggling to believe. But the doctor said to you, congratulations, when he switched your son's life support off, meaning that you'd made the right decision. And you were told that when the life support was switched off, that nobody would be able to tell how long Ethan would carry on living for, whether it would be minutes or hours or even days. So Tracy, when Ethan's life support system was switched off, obviously many people might not know that all treatment is withheld, including drugs, including um, anything for life support. But we just want to make it very, very clear to our viewers and listeners that Ethan died in your arms peacefully with you and his dad. And we're not going to go into details into Ethan's passing because it's private and it's for Tracy and Ethan's dad. But I know, Tracy, that you've got still 60 complaints currently. Well, you've made 60 complaints. You've had 37 replies. Those complaints are ongoing and you carry on fighting and you're carrying on talking about Ethan's story to highlight this for so many other parents. What now, Tracy? Are you still waiting for more replies? Because you've had no support from any professional organisation. You've literally been doing this on your own. Yes, I've, I've, ha I've, I've responded to their replies. So, uh, sorry, Debbie, it was 34. I've had replies from the hospitals, the two hosp in between the two hospitals. Um, I just wanted to backtrack a little bit just to say that Ethan's brother was also there as well with Ethan um, when he passed away, but he wasn't allowed in until um, nine days before Ethan passed. So um, siblings were, were blocked to come in too. I just want to raise that awareness as well because of the COVID restrictions. Um, and going back to the complaints, I'm still waiting to hear from my reply I've given them, which I've disputed. I've disputed the 34 they've sent me. I've disputed. And um, obviously the, the main one with Alder Hay, which is the first one they've replied to, they actually said, even though that Ethan never showed any signs of COVID and the severe chest infection that's associated with COVID, they made a collective decision. On, on, on then going on to prescribe the, the treatment to assist anyone who has COVID. And he was given, um, obviously, the, the drug, you know, the, the actual uh, drug thinner heparin, and he had the, the blood transfusion. And um, I know I did speak to Healthwatch Sefton, um, it's an advocacy service, and I know that they have had numerous parents calling them regarding the, the failure of having a blood testing service within the community, and they have actually wrote to the, the paediatric commissioner over this because uh, Ethan was supposed to go to blood, have blood tests before going into hospital, but he was too he was too poorly to go, and I wasn't well as well. I hadn't been well. But there's no service for that. And to move uh, a child with severe disabilities um, for a, a quick 10 minute service, blood, like blood testing, it's, it's just horrendous. Adults have got the service in the community, but children haven't. Why? And that's a very good question. And I think it's a question. And at, at the UK column, we've been we've been featuring children a lot, children are high on our agenda and we've been asking very similar questions and all of the questions and all of the experiences that you and tragically Ethan have gone through will only make us more determined to highlight these cases more and more. And for people 
watching this, please share if you can. And I know that this is going to be a hard interview for many people to watch. No, no more so than for Tracy and, and Ethan's dad. But this interview is for a purpose. It's to celebrate Ethan's short life. And it's also to highlight, to highlight the traps that parents are finding themselves in. And as always, Tracy, we end with giving you the final word. And my heartfelt love goes out to all of you and my condolences because Ethan had the most amazing parents, the most amazing mum and the most amazing eight years of love and happiness and chocolate and trains. And thank you, Tracy. Thank you so much for bringing Ethan's story to us. And to everybody out there, please share this video. And now, Tracy, I'd really love to hand over to you for your last word. And thank you, God bless. Thank you, Debbie. Um, I did quite a few, a, list, a few holistic things with Ethan at home, supplements, to try and just keep him stable. But my son received, in my, this is my opinion, my son received years of poisoning from these drugs that we're working from him from two hospitals. This this drug abuse has to stop, has to stop now. Prescribing poisonous, unlicensed drugs that overstimulate our children as well. I, it's, I think it's a crime. We need safer options and they're already available, but not in the NHS. With immediate effect, the introduction of complementary alternative natural medicine needs to be the first choice, not a no choice, when possible. A non-toxic, safer approach to our children's health service, healthcare in the NHS is essential. Um, I truly believe that if Ethan was able to access this holistic treatment as his main treatment when possible, he will be alive here with me today.